You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Greetings. Our opening prayer is from the Gospel of Matthew. So be perfect, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Welcome to this series, Catholic Seasons. This is the second part of a talk on the Sermon on the Mount. It is strongly suggested, if you have not listened to the first part, that you do so before you move into this one. A lot of background material, notes about the structure of the Sermon on the Mount and its context, some theories about it, were all handled in the first part. And so, while you can understand the material presented in the second part, it will be much easier to follow and you'll have a better background if you listen first to that information in the first part and then move into this second one. So picking up from where we left off on this discussion of the Sermon on the Mount, We find ourselves in chapter 5 at verse 31, where we read, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But now I myself say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, The idea of the divorce, this is about, in this context, a man divorcing his wife. Was the opposite possible? Could the wife divorce the man? Yes. It was allowed, but not common in the times of the Old Testament. It was more common in the Hellenistic world, the Greek world, the world outside the Bible itself. In the New American Bible that I'm using here, as the translation, it says an unlawful marriage. Different translations will have different various words. The King James Version says fornication. Others, such as the New Revised Standard, speaks of unchastity, or the Jerusalem Bible talks about an illicit marriage. Others mention sexual immorality, or lewd conduct. In the Greek text of the original, the word used in the Greek can have a range of meanings for sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, there is clearly another word in Greek for adultery, and that word is not used here. So, what is this lewd conduct? or this unchastity, or this unlawful marriage? Is it an exception added by Matthew? No. What is spoken of here is the idea of incestuous marriages, especially as found amongst converts, converts to Christianity from paganism, where Roman law allowed a degree of consanguinity not allowed in Jewish law. 
These were invalid marriages. Consider, for instance, in the church today, in its law, canon law, and in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's no real marriage, but it was recognized in Roman civil law. So that's the context for this. Some other ideas have been given amongst the Greek Orthodox. Their answer is that it is a real exception for adultery. But again, the Greek word used is not the word for adultery. Others will say it's really only talking about separation without remarriage because of adultery. But the text does not bear that. And again, adultery isn't the word used. And so, it's an incestuous union, which is not a marriage. Therefore, it would not be adultery to violate it. And since it's not a marriage in the first place, the partners could separate. And therefore, it is consistent with what Jesus has said about no divorce. And the word in the Greek will allow for this, and it fits this meaning. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, verse 29, we have something similar. This is the part of Acts where they're talking about the letter as the result of the Council of Jerusalem. And to pick it up in the middle of the verse, quote, namely, to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right. Farewell. The community at Qumran also supports this kind of an idea. And we have a precedent in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 18. This is a support for this idea of an incestuous marriage. It's in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 to 18. In other words, what is civilly recognized and what the church does not recognize. The same word comes up again in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. It reiterates the same teaching. We find, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another commits adultery. So divorce is not allowed. And it is consistent all the way through in the teaching in the Gospels. Consider, by comparison, an annulment today in the church. An annulment does not break a marriage. It is not, as some people erroneously call it, a Catholic divorce. An annulment in the church is simply a statement of fact that no marriage existed in the first place, and therefore the parties are able to marry someone else. Now, so what is spoken of here is not a marriage, and if it's not a marriage, then they are free to marry again, and it wouldn't be adultery. And again, these incestuous unions were recognized as valid in Roman law. And so the problem came where pagans, Gentiles, with this Roman culture background and situation of their lives, when they became Christians, found themselves in an intolerable situation. And that's what this is dealing with. As for the rest of the verse, a woman at that time 
in that society usually needed to remarry in order to survive, and especially if there were young children that were present as well. So, if truly married, and this is a situation for the rest of the verse here in the sermon, she would be committing adultery, as would the man, by marrying her. But if it was an incestuous union when there was no marriage to begin with, then it's not adultery. Moving on to verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, Do not make a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But now I myself say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one. The idea of oaths, it seems less important, and in a way it is, compared to the things we've spoken about, about murder and about adultery. But yet oaths were also very serious matters in that society at that time. They had serious legal implications. Oaths were important then, especially because it was an oral-based society. Today we would say, get it in writing. But even today... Oaths are still important. We have, for instance, perjury laws. Perjury is no light matter. And think of an oath of office, or an oath taken before someone gives testimony in a court of law. They were legally important at that time, but there was also a theological reason. An oath called God as a witness. So an oath made God a witness, and some of them do end, so help me God, or God is my witness, even to this day. So if it were a false oath, then God, in a sense, would be called upon to be an accomplice in evil. And even if someone swears by something other than God himself, that person was still swearing by something related to God. Heaven, that is God's throne. Earth, that is his footstool. Jerusalem is the city where he dwells, especially in the temple. Also, you do not swear by your head. God is your creator. And Jesus, though, takes it further, as he does with many of the examples that we've seen already. It's not just false oaths. But he says, you shouldn't do any swearing at all. It shouldn't be needed. In other words, make an oath unnecessary. Jesus is teaching the ideal, that it is to be truthful in all things and not need to rely upon an oath, simply to be able to be as good as your word. Let your yes mean yes and your no be no. Moving on in verse 38, we find, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But now I myself say to you, offer no resistance to one who is evil. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, hand him your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, 
Go with him for two miles. In verse 38, the idea of an eye for an eye, this comes from the Mosaic Law, and actually was an improvement for its time over blood vengeance. Before you killed a family member of mine, I wiped out your whole family. Mosaic Law tried to equal things out. And now Jesus moves beyond the Mosaic Law here. He is expanding and deepening it, taking it further. Yet it's not the idea to be a pacifist. We do need to stand up for what is right. Don't be a doormat. But the idea is not to be getting revenge. It's a distributive justice. Things need to be kept in proportion. Jesus goes beyond and extends it even to enemies and beyond just the externals, as we've seen in other contexts in the sermon. So don't resist evil, meaning no personal revenge, a settling of scores. When someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. Don't retaliate, not simply to get revenge. You have to consider the context. And think of Christ in the Passion when he is struck by one of his oppressors. And he questions and challenges that. Why did you strike me? Verse 42. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn your back on one who wants to borrow. And so the idea of not lending grudgingly or only out of some kind of obligation. But we do want to really want to help somebody. But we also have to be careful too. Again, this is not a precept to be taken literally in all cases. Sometimes it might be. But we have to be careful that we do not become enablers. What used to be called material cooperation. That we give to someone who we know is going to use it for a bad purpose. And so to give to one who wants to borrow, if indeed this is really going to help them, if they are in need and they're going to use it for a good purpose, but not to give to someone if they're going to use it to do some evil to themselves or to others. So again, the context. Verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But now I myself say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The idea of hating enemies is not found in so many words in the Old Testament, but the context is there for it, it would seem, in some of the Psalms. And so I would refer you to the talks that I have about the Psalms where I take some time in one of them to speak about what's known as the cursing Psalms, calling down hot coals on the head of your enemy or something like that. And what does all that mean and what's really going on there and how to handle that in an interpretation, especially when the Psalms are prayers. So I won't go into it here, but I would refer you to that talk on the Psalms. Now, we have two in here in this verse of uh, verse 45, the rain and the sun. And that's the idea of the dignity and the worth of everyone in God's view. 
And verse 45 is what's called a chiasm. Bad, good, just, unjust. Chiasm is a term that comes from the Greek letter chi, and it's transliterated as an X. So it could be diagrammed out in the following way. And you have to use your imagination a little, because I don't have any visuals that I can use here on this talk. So think of the letter X. And the points of it would be capital A, capital B, small b, small a. So, again, the letter X, the upper left, the upper right, the lower left, and the lower right. The upper left is capital A. The upper right is capital B. The lower left is small b, and the lower right is small a. So they cross, a, b, b, a. That's the structure of a simple chiasm. They make a cross, they make an x, and so from the Greek letter x, so chi, so a chiasm. Now, it can also be diagrammed out in a linear view of four lines. So one line, the first line is capital A, bad. Next line, capital B, good. Next line, small b, just. The fourth line, small a, unjust. In a chiasm, the stress is in the center. And here the center is the good and the just. It was used often in ancient writings, in the Bible and outside of the Bible. It was a literary device to show emphasis. Whatever was in the center was stressed. And it also gave a certain symmetry. So it was a stylistic element. And what was in the center was to be stressed. That's what was important. It could be much larger than just the ABBA. In larger texts, it would help one to remember all the elements especially for the one who was proclaiming it or reading it in an oral-based society to make sure they got all the parts in, if you will. So there was a symmetry for the first half, the center that was stressed, then the second half. And it was an aid to memory to get all the parts and pieces together so that they balanced each other. And it could become quite extensive as well. And it would help for the person who heard it because it would help them to remember the elements. One of the largest in the Bible, a fascinating one, is the flood story in Genesis. The entire story is one large example with many, many parts to it. It actually goes up to the letter O in the alphabet. And so for both the narrator or the writer and for the hearer or the reader, It is a stylistic device, an aid to memory. But the problem for us is that, first of all, we don't use it in modern writing. And secondly, translations often don't show it. They don't do it justice. It's one of those devices like alliteration, consonants, assonance, and others. Sometimes it just doesn't work in a translation from another language. And so... In this one example, and we're going to see some more of them, 
The good and the just are stressed over the bad and the unjust. Now, for moving on then to verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So more is asked of a Christian. Otherwise, what's the difference? Again, Jesus is going further. He's expanding. He's not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling it. And so in verse 48, be perfect so that you're as your just as your heavenly Father is perfect. This verse 48 of chapter 5 is the source for the Lutheran idea of the impossible ethic that we spoke of in the first section. But the idea here in Matthew is that of a wholeness or, co- or of a completeness. You obviously can't be as good as God. And so Luther took this as an impossible ethic. You can't be as good as God. Therefore, you don't have to follow the Sermon on the Mount. It's impossible to follow it. We as Catholics would disagree with that. Yes, we know we can't be as good as God. But it is an idea of a completeness, a wholeness, a striving to be as perfect as we can following the example of Christ, of God. Doing better than the bare minimum. And so now, this verse links the two sections that we talked about. It'll show us now how to be better than just the commandments. We have the commandments, and Jesus expands those and fulfills those. Now, we're going to move even further, and we're going to come to a turning point in a way. So, chapter 5, verse 48 So be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect, is a summary. It closes the preceding part and introduces a new section about perfection, going beyond the minimum and then going to the next part of going even further, and chapter 6 will do that. So back in chapter 5, verse 20, that thematic verse that we spoke about is now going to... Govern chapter 6 on holiness, surpassing that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The second principle, chapter 5, verse 20, will now govern chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 12. I want to take just a little digression on the Pharisees to give them their due. They tried to teach by example. The Pharisees, as a movement, started in about the 160s, 170s B.C. They were a lay group. In Hebrew, the word Pharisee means separated or a separatist. Who were they separated from? From basically the temple and priests and the corruption that was at that time. Now, the Essenes did the same thing, but they actually physically moved out and lived by themselves in the desert. The Pharisees still stayed within society, but they absented themselves from many things. And the idea was that they wanted to get back to what the law, the covenant, commanded. And they said, we study the law, we know it, and we can apply it in other situations where there wasn't a specific law. If there 
was a specific law, they would remind the people of it. If there wasn't, they would apply other laws to help them along. You've got a situation. What should I do? This is what you should do. And so they said also, too, we'll do it by example as well. Now, that was a good idea, at least when it started. But they would be the ones to not only tell people what to do, but they would be a living example and do it themselves. This is back when they started in the 160s, 170s BC. However, it got out of control. And especially by the time of our Lord, they became very self-righteous and very oppressive with all of their laws. And we see it all the way through the Gospels. So, a good idea to begin with. They wanted to get back to proper observances, and they were going to set the example. But it degenerated. It became something they did for show, for the admiration of others, for accolades and privileges which it brought them. And so, of course, our Lord spoke against that. But no, too, just as an aside, there were some Pharisees who did become followers of Christ, and he dined with some of them. And so you have to take the context into uh, your mind with this and take it into account as you read the Gospels because there are still good Pharisees as well as bad ones in that sense. So, again, like everything else, it's... uh, something that is not so clear-cut in every case. So keep that in mind. But of course, for those that were self-righteous, that those that did it only for show, our Lord is going to have very strong words. We're going to see those coming up. We move now on to chapter 6, verse 1. Take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Otherwise, you will have no recompense from your Heavenly Father. Chapter 6, verse 1 is a summary. It's a general principle. And then four examples will follow. The examples are alms, prayer, prayer again, where we have the Our Father, and fasting. It makes a chiasm. Alms, prayer, prayer, fasting. Prayer is the central part, and it's the largest of this. That's where the stress is. And all the the other parts, and with prayer as well, are similar in that they are all religious practices. So, alms, prayer, and fasting made a triad. They were part of the traditional Jewish piety. So, in this situation, alms are spoken about in verses 2 through 4. Prayer in verses 5 and 6. Prayer again in verses 7 through 15. And fasting in verses 16 to 18. So this makes our chiasm. Capital A, alms. Capital B, prayer. Small b, prayer again. Small a, fasting. That's the structure. Now, to make it even more interesting, this is in a way an outer chiasm, let's call it that, because within each one of those 
parts, there is yet another chiasm, an inner chiasm, inside of it. So you have alms. There's a chiasm in that. You have prayer, a chiasm in that. Prayer again, and fasting again, chiasms in both of those. The chiasms that are the inner one, for want of a better term, are the following. Capital A, a practice, is mentioned. Capital B, Jesus gives the abuse of that practice. Small b, he condemns that practice, that abuse of the practice. And then small a, the correct practice is given. So the center in that inner chiasm stresses correcting the abuse that one can do better. And an example is given. So the triad are the three pillars of Jewish piety. And an example of doing more and doing better than the Pharisees. So let's take a look at that now. We've got the general principle that we don't do things just for show. And that was again in verse 1. Now in verse 2, we get the concrete example. Verse 2, when you give alms, do not blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, to win the praise of others. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your almsgiving may be secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Okay, let's take a little closer look at this. The sounding of the trumpet, what's the image? Now, we think of the sounding of a trumpet like a herald's trumpet or something to call attention to things. There's going to be a proclamation, and you see that in the movies and such. There's a herald there with a trumpet and blows the trumpet and such. But what's the possibilities? What are the possibilities here? First, it may have been done to let the poor know so that they could gather around to get the generosity. But we don't really have any evidence of that. The second idea is that the receptacle where alms were given was shaped like a horn with the wider part at the top, and it narrowed down into the box or wherever the container was where the alms went for it. Now, today we have a, a box for donations in a church or something. It's usually a very narrow slot. But they would have something where there was this horn, a metal horn, that was fixed into the top of the receptacle, whatever it was. And it was metal. Okay, so then, in giving the alms, what the Pharisees would do would be to throw the coins, hurl them against the side, the inside part of this metal horn, so they'd make a racket as they clanged all the way down inside. And so they would call attention to the donation. Again, in theory, a good idea. They're making a donation. They want to make that known to other people to follow their example. But you can see what it led to. It was just simply making a show of it and making a lot of noise for that. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, the Greek underneath that is a word that means an actor. Someone putting on a show, 
someone playing a role, something that's not authentic. Originally, in the Greek, it did not have the negative connotation. But of course, as it is used here in the Gospel, it does have the negative nuance, and that's the way we use it today. But in the original Greek, it was just an idea of an actor. Then this idea of a reward. Again, the Greek is it conveys an idea of a receipt, a payment. Here's your receipt. Nothing more. The transaction is done. The reward, really, the better word would be a receipt. You're paid in full. This is all you're going to get. It was a wage or a payment. You've got it. Now go. So getting noticed is your pay. The praise that people would give you is your pay. You've bought recognition. Now go. The idea is it's done only for notice. You got it. That's it. You put your stock in other people's estimation and their praise and adulation. Also, too, noting in the verses here, uh, as Jesus speaks about this, for instance, uh, in verse 3, but when you give alms. Now, we talked about the idea of but as a connective uh, earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount. Here, it does have an adversative connotation. It didn't have earlier on. It was just simply a mild connective. You've heard it said, and I say. Here, though, it has the negative force because it is used with a negative. Don't do this, but do this instead. And so there is the adversative, the negative there. That's how the syntax works in Greek for this. And when the correct practice is given, as it says here, and for this example, and that, uh, and your father who sees in secret will repay you. The idea that God will repay you. In the Greek, in the original, it's a different word than the word that was used that we translate often as reward, which really is receipt. It's a different word there. God is not giving the sincere, genuine almsgiver, giving in secret. He's not just giving them a receipt. He's giving them something of value. The word in this context for the repaying is the idea of giving something back. A more positive concept, not merely a receipt, but you will get something back that is of value. Of course, that's what you receive from God. So, looking at the chiastic structure, the inner one, we've got capital A, the practice, giving alms. Capital B, the abuse, blowing a trumpet when giving alms. Small b, the abuse is condemned, calling them hypocrites and and saying they have received their receipt. And small a, the proper practice, do it in secret and receive something back from your father. So Jesus is saying, do these practices honestly, sincerely, correctly, and receive a repayment from his father. Let's move on to the second part of the Jewish triad, prayer. Prayer. 
Verse 5, we read, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners, so that others may see them. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Now, Jesus is not against community prayer. Remember, he said elsewhere, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. Again, keep the context in mind. Not to do it for show. Not to uh, just to please people or that. But to do it genuinely in all places, whether it's alone or in community. And again, you can see how the structure works there. Prayer, the abuse of it, don't be like the hypocrites. He condemns them, calls them hypocrites. And then what is the proper practice? Pray in secret, at least in this context. Again, nothing against liturgical or community prayer. Again, prayer is the center part. Now, we have then the idea in verse 7, in praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, this is how you are to pray. So we've got prayer again, and again the chiastic structure. And so to look at that a little bit more closely. For the pagans, they of course came out of a polytheistic culture. They had many gods and goddesses, and you might remember some of them from your liberal, liberal arts uh, education. All of the gods and goddesses, and uh, Jupiter and Zeus, uh, whether they were Roman or Greek, uh, Hera, Aphrodite, Venus, all of them, uh, and that might cause to mind some of those things. Now, so therefore, when they prayed, they had to make sure that they didn't leave anybody out. You get them all in and especially if there was some difficulty. We have examples, for instance, outside of the Greek and Roman literature from polytheistic cultures where if you were having a a streak of misfortune, you would go to the pagan priest, and he would try to help you to, in some way, atone for whatever you had done to offend the God. And so you'd tell him what your problem was, what you were suffering, and he would have a list, and he'd say, well, maybe it's this one, maybe it's that one. So you'd offer a sacrifice to this one or do something for that one, and he would give you the list. And he had to make sure you got them all in so you didn't leave one out. So whatever God you irked or annoyed, you would be able to in some way atone for that. This is what our Lord is speaking against, and against just piling words on top of words. So it's the idea of quality over quantity. And so, what is the right practice? In verse 9, This is how you are to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he goes and gives what we have as our our Father. Luke has a slightly different version, a little shorter. Matthew seems to be a little more expanded. Luke's perhaps a little closer to the original. Matthew reflects the liturgical use of the prayer in his community. And I'm going to leave it just at that because I have a talk on the Our Father itself. So I would refer you to that for more information. 
So let's move on to verse 16. And this is the third part of the triad of Jewish piety. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance so that they may appear to others to be fasting. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not appear to others to be fasting, except to your Father who is hidden. And your Father who sees what is hidden will repay you. Okay. Notice too, in the fasting example here given, it's the appearance of fasting, that they may appear to others to be fasting. And of course, that's what Jesus is condemning. Just the mere appearance of it and to do it for show. Not really doing it, but just trying to impress others. Again, done solely for the recognition or the praise. And while it might have been a good idea to try to give an example for others to do the same, you can see what it led to. And so you've got these chiasms within chiasms. And you can stop and meditate upon them. We're going to move into the next part, chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and decay destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor decay destroys, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Verse 19 speaks about uh, moth and rust. So fine clothes and riches, uh, valuables, gold and silver, money as part of the treasure. It's a constant worry here on earth. We strive for it. We work to accumulate it. We make it an obsession sometimes, a preoccupation. We've got to guard it. We've got to worry over it. Instead, nothing can harm the treasure that we have in heaven. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be in darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great will the darkness be? It's similar to what our Lord said previously in the sermon, being the light of the world. It is Christ's light shining through our lives, not our light, but his light shining through us. And of course, the idea Again, the connection for evangelization, the eye and the lamp. It deals with the whole direction of one's life. A single-mindedness, as in the Beatitudes, the pure of heart. The idea of a single-mindedness, a purity of our intention and of our striving. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The two masters. There was a rabbinic teaching about a slave owned by two people. And it oftentimes speaks in the translation, as it does here in the New American Bible, about mammon. In the Aramaic that's underneath that, the idea is that of property. Treasure on earth. It's more than just money, and it's more than just real estate kinds of property. It's 
all, all of one's possessions, our wealth, our earthly goods, our riches, more than just money. And it's putting trust in those possessions instead of relying on God. And it's the possessions of an entire lifespan. Wealth is not to be a preoccupation. We're not to be obsessed with it. But remember, too, that wealth itself is not bad. And as a matter of fact, in the wisdom literature, wealth and wisdom were very closely interconnected. And so I would refer you again to another talk in this series about the wisdom literature, where I go into depth in explaining that relationship of wealth and wisdom. It's when you get too much wealth, when it distracts you, when you don't use it for the good of others. So, three things then, perhaps, to remember about wealth. Don't amass too much of it. Consider where you put your reliance. And when you have wealth, use it for others. Where is your heart? Where is your trust? And this is in the section on being more holy. So going beyond the strict minimum, going the extra distance, even beyond what we did in going beyond the commandments. In chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, we come to a new section, but yet it is related to what was before. Five times in the Greek, the same root is used. In translations, the word is usually worry or anxiety or being anxious. But the same word is used in the Greek. It's good English style to vary things, to use synonyms. But using the same root all the way through, repeating it, drives home the emphasis that the author is trying to make. And so the idea here of worry, that idea, is in in the sense here, whether you use worry, anxiety, being anxious or such, it's to focus in on that. The idea of excessive concern that takes us over becomes an obsession, becomes a preoccupation. And Jesus gives examples. Again, we have a general principle. And that's in chapter 6, verse 25, where we read, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? And then, an example of each. Food, in chapter 6, verses 25 to 27. Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow nor reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more important than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single moment to your lifespan? And then the example of clothing, verses 28 to 30. Why are you anxious about clothes? Learn from the way the wild flowers grow. They do not work or spin. But I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field which grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O little of faith? And so 
in the general principle, in verse 25, he speaks about food and clothing and then gives two very specific examples. And so, in a sense, we have another chiasm because in verse 31, we go back to a general principle. So we've got a principle. We've got an example of food. We have an example of clothing. And we've got another principle. And that's verse 31. So do not worry and say, what are we to eat? Or what are we to drink? Or what are we to wear? And then there's a conclusion to it as well in verses 32 to 34. All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, and knows, excuse me, knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. So eating, drinking, clothing are basic needs. We usually put eating and drinking together into food, and we say food, shelter, and clothing. And the birds and the flowers are examples of the food and the clothing. A concern is needed, but it has to be a prudent one, not to worry or have a preoccupation. The idea of the priority as well. First, you worry about your relationship to God. And then you worry about the other things, necessary as they may be, but they're not first. Your first priority is to follow Christ and to have prudence as well. As we move into chapter 7, then, we don't have a, <clears throat> a clear structure. This reflects more the wisdom teachings. There sometimes will be a structure in the wisdom teachings, but oftentimes they'll just simply be a collection of one after another after another. And that's what this seems to be. So, we find in chapter 7, verse 1, Stop judging, that you may not be judged. For as you judge, so will you be judged, and the measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the wooden beam in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me remove that splinter from your eye? while the wooden beam is in your eye. You hypocrite, remove the wooden beam from your eye first, then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. The idea is reciprocal justice in a sense. You'll be judged the way you judge. Now we have to be careful here and we have to make a distinction. We're not condemning, but we are distinguishing. For instance, don't judge, but yet we do. We have to make judgments. We have to judge whether or not we should do something. Is something right or is something wrong? But there's a difference between an objective and a subjective judgment. We make decisions, whatever the action is that we are questioning. But we don't condemn people. We don't condemn the person. And so, objectively, we take a look and say, that's wrong. But we don't make a subjective judgment on the person themselves. Because we don't know sometimes. The best way to handle this perhaps is to turn it around to ourselves and critique ourselves to say, I couldn't do that, or I shouldn't do that, or that would be wrong for me. I don't know all that was involved for that other person. I don't know what kind of constraints they were under. 
Correct yourself first before correcting others, and to use discernment as well. The beam and the speck are examples taken from rabbinic literature. And so Jesus is very much a part of his tradition and borrows from that. In verse 5, we find the hypocrite again. But this time it's a little different. This time it's here in direct address. He's not just simply saying, beware of them, as earlier, but he says, you are them, you hypocrite. And so it's to the Pharisees, but it's to all of us to beware. Let's move on to verse 8. Do not give what is holy to dogs, or throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot, and turn and tear you to pieces. What is the image? Some have said it's the idea of the Holy Eucharist, not to be giving it to unworthy people. But that does not fit the context. Rather, it seems perhaps to guard the teaching, the whole gospel, to give it respect, the teaching in the sermon, but the entire gospel as well. Don't trample or disregard the gospel. Respect the teaching that you have received. It fits the context, although perhaps it might have been more fitting at the end of all of this, but still it does fit in here. The gospel is not to be squandered, to be made light of, to be exposed to ridicule, and also, too, to be given to those who will turn it against you as well. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask and seek first for the kingdom, and not just for things and possessions. It is a reference to prayer, and there are three imperatives and three consequences. In this we ask, we receive, and we look for. And the one who asks will receive, the one who seeks will find, and the one who knocks will have the door open for them. In verse 9, which one of you would hand his son a stone when he asked for a loaf of bread, or a snake when he asked for a fish? If you then, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Some take verse 9 and 10 as the idea that even if we are stingy, God is generous. I think you can also look at it in a more positive way, on both sides. It's not necessarily a contrast of bad and good. We're stingy, God is generous. But more positive, on both sides, even if we are generous, God is even more generous. Not only what is good and bad, but rather what is good and what is even better. Verse 9 and 11, through this, the generosity of God is used as an example for hearers and their own generosity. Verse 12, Do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. It's the golden rule, we would say. Rabbi Hillel expressed the negative of it. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This negative of the golden rule is seen elsewhere. It's in the book of Tobit, for instance. 
And so the idea of love of your neighbor as yourself, and summing up the law and the prophets, in verse 12, this is the law and the prophets. Okay, do to others what you would have them do to you. In verse 12, this is the law and the prophets. It echoes way back in chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so it makes one of those inclusions that we saw in the first part. All the way back to chapter 5, verse 17. This is chapter 7, verse 12. Also, too, in Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34, a scholar of the law was testing Jesus, asking him which is the greatest commandment. Jesus replies, the first is to love God above all, and the second is to love your neighbor. The whole law and prophets is love of God and love of neighbor. And so this sums up everything, and we see it again in verse 12. And then we have come to a series of contrasts in verse 13. And the tone changes very distinctly to warnings. And we have clear examples. And this follows very much the practice of the wisdom literature. There's a duality that is seen often in the wisdom literature. And the purpose was for the clarity. They knew of shading. They knew things were not one extreme or another. But in placing it this way in their examples, it made it easier to remember, and also, too, it made it easier to understand. The same was true also in the prophets and in the narrative, the law parts. It was very clear, this or that, good or bad. It was a pedagogical device, in a sense, to make the teaching clear beyond a doubt. Choose life or death is the choice given in the narrative parts of the Old Testament. The same with the prophets. And so this duality of good or of evil for this, back and forth. And so here Jesus once again is very much in the tradition of the wisdom literature. And he uses these examples of two different things, two different ways of doing things are two different images. And so we've got two gates, two ways, two animals, two trees, and two foundations. A narrow and a wide gate, a narrow and a wide way, two different animals, sheep and wolves, different trees and fruits that are there, the grapes and the figs, the thorn bushes and the thistles and the two foundations, rock and sand. Again, it makes it very clear, it makes it easy to remember it, and it explains the teaching. So, in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road broad that leads to destruction, and those who enter through it are many. So the two gates and the two ways. Verse 14, How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The narrow gate, the difficulty of following the teaching, but its path, also narrow, is one that leads to salvation. So the two are joined there together, the two gates and the two ways. Verse 15, 
Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but underneath are ravenous wolves. Verse 16, By your fruits you will know them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Just so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So by their fruits you will know them. So the idea of the two animals, the two trees, and the two foundations we're going to come up to now. But first, in looking at these, the false and the true prophets. What is their criterion here? In verse 15, in speaking about the false prophets, how do you know? Well, by what they produce. Is the good of the community their product, their effect, their result, or is it discourse? Uh, discord, excuse me. In the Old Testaments, uh, Old Testament prophets, the criterion was whether or not events proved them true. Of course, hindsight we say is twenty twenty. What about before the events, when they are prophesying something? How can you tell? Well, there's an obligation on the part of the hearer that they should know the obligations of the covenant. This was the idea in the Old Testament, that those who heard the prophets should know what the tradition was, should know what the law was, and so should be able to discern whether a prophet was true or false. So there was some onus on the part of the hearer as well, an obligation on them. So who are these false prophets then that our Lord is speaking about? Some say he was talking about the Gnostics, but these came after the time of Jesus, so it's not the Gnostics. Some say he was speaking about the Essenes, but probably not. They are nowhere elsewhere spoken of in the scriptures. Others say there was a contrast and a competition between the Pauline and the Mathean communities, but there's no basis for any kind of a discord or a problem or a difficulty or a competition between the churches that Paul founded and Matthew's community. And also, too, that wouldn't be of the time of Jesus when Jesus is preaching this. Some say the zealots, but there's no evidence elsewhere in Scripture that they were a problem at all. Jesus didn't seem to have any clash with them. So that brings us back again to the Pharisees. Yes, that's it. In Jesus' time and for Matthew's community, as I spoke of in the first part, the context for this whole part of Matthew's gospel and for the whole gospel itself, as the Jewish Christians, those who came to Christianity from Judaism with its tradition and history very firm in their mind as part of their history, and how they struggled with their former synagogue brethren trying to pull them back into Judaism. I explained all that in the first part. So it's the Pharisees. And again, we have another inclusion. Verse 16 and verse 20. By your fruits you will know them. It sets off the section, closes the circle, if you will. Now we move on to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. In verse 21 and the following, it seems maybe Jesus is speaking about those who follow, at least in name, but don't really. And then it's apropos for false segments in the church. False ideas following as what was spoken of in verse 15. Some internal problems with Matthew's community. And they would have experienced this. And they would have experienced it again in their own families. For those who came to Christianity from the Jewish background and those of their family and friends who remained in Judaism. And the problems and the struggles that would be there. In verse 22, when he speaks about on that day, it means the judgment day, the parousia. Verse 24, Everyone who listens to these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and buffeted the house. But it did not collapse. It had been set solidly on rock. And everyone who listens to these words of mine but does not act on them will be like a fool who built his house on sand. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and buffeted the house, and it collapsed and was completely ruined. The foundation. The foundation is the word, and then close by it is the house that's being built. That's what you build on the foundation. And so these two are interconnected. You have the firm foundation of the rock, and if you build your house, that is, you live your life, based on that firm foundation, it will last, it will stand, it will be an example, it will be a light to others, and all the other images. If you build your house on a foundation of sand, one that is not the rock of the teaching of Jesus, one that is the shifting sands of the world, of trends, of of whatever fads or whatever it is, any philosophies, secular wisdom, or whatever you wish in there, that is a foundation of sand, and that'll collapse. And the house, the life that you live, will be in disarray, and it will be a mess, and it will collapse as well. So the foundation is very close to the house there. And if your foundation is on the rock, your house will be solid as well, If the foundation is on sand, it's going to collapse. The house and the sand will collapse as well for it. And then we have in verse 28, When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The importance of the sermon and the seriousness of learning from it and carrying it out. And so all of this, the tone has changed a little bit, but still it is showing us everything that's been a part of the sermon and really can be applied to all of Jesus' teaching. John speaks of a new commandment, a commandment of love. 
And some have said, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's really nothing new. We see Jewish roots in all of it all the way through. And in general, there are many Jewish antecedents. Jesus was a Jewish preacher, and he worked from the tradition. After all, his hearers, his first hearers, were familiar with that tradition as well. And so whether it's the sermon or even a wider context of all of Jesus' preaching, it is rooted in Jewish spirituality, in Jewish teaching, in Jewish doctrine. But, of course, he is changing it and going much further. He's building on that tradition. He is fulfilling, not abolishing. And again, John says that we speaks of Jesus saying, love others as I have loved you. And so we have love of God, we have love of neighbor. And in the Old Testament, these notions were found there as well. We sometimes don't think of it as much of that of the love of neighbor, but it's there as well. And so some would say there's nothing new. But what is new? This expansion, this call to a higher standard that Jesus expects more of his followers and that Jesus died for us. That's how he showed his love for us. That takes it to the highest level possible after his passion, death, and resurrection. It's seen clearly after his resurrection. There is a new relationship. And so the sermon has to be seen in light of that as well. There is some hyperbole, gouging out your eye, cutting off your hand or your arm or such. But it's not an impossible ethic. It's not just an interim ethic either, that Jesus was expecting to come back very soon, and so you only had to be good for a little while. No, not at all. Nor that you would have to keep it for just a short time. It's not a double standard either, as we said in part one, only for some to do it and not for others. It was for everybody. There's no indication of any of these ideas of an interim or an impossible or a spiritual elite or anything like that in a sermon itself. But rather, it was preached to all. Remember, the crowd is there, made up of disciples, apostles, foreigners, Jewish people, everyone, the early church as well, and for us as well. The gospel message is to everybody. It is an ideal, but it is not unreachable. We need his help. He wants us to do it, to do it for all of time, to do it for all of our own lives, to do it in the church for all the time until he comes back again. And so it is for all of us. It is to be done, but we can't do it by ourselves. We need his help. And of course, with his grace, all things are possible. God bless you. Hello, God's Beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. 
God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.